There are some sermons that I really look forward to preaching. And there are others which are a little bit harder to get excited about. And then there are some which, to be honest, I'd rather not preach. And today's sermon is one of those. As soon as that passage is read, you realize, don't you, that the stakes are high. And it's not even the whole thing. Just a couple of extremely blatantly countercultural verses right in the middle are, in, are enough to make us all feel incredibly uncomfortable. But I hope it doesn't surprise us too much that just occasionally, God's word comes with a big shock factor. It would be strange, wouldn't it, if the Bible really is the word of God, if it only ever agreed and affirmed with the way we were thinking or the way a culture happened to live. Our reading this morning is shocking. And not just because of that one big issue that stares out at us from those couple of verses right in the middle. It is shocking in all sorts of ways. And so perhaps even more than normal, we're going to need God's help to understand it. So would you bow your heads with me and pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes we find your words hard to understand and even harder to accept. But please help us to believe today that you are always a good God and that your words are always true. Show us, please, what we need to see from this passage, whether we've been Christians a long time or are still making up our minds. Help us, please, to be humble and change our lives and hearts as a result of what we hear. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Wednesday, lunchtime, I found myself making my lunch, listening to the radio, as the judge summed up the case against David Carrick, the former police officer guilty of countless rapes. And I had to turn it off. The details were just so horrific. And I felt nothing but anger. Anger against a man who has committed no crime against me. Because there is such a thing, isn't there, as righteous anger, which is just where our passage begins. Have a look, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. You see, God is angry. That is what the word wrath means. God's good, settled, utterly perfect, totally fair anger against evil. It's not a character flaw he's trying to work on. It's not a mood he sometimes wakes up in. It is an essential part of who he is. And one writer puts it like this, his wrath is a holy, loving wrath. If God did not hate evil, he could not be love. If God did not burn with fury against evil, he could not be holy. You see, the anger we feel when a rapist's crimes are exposed or when a husband shoots dead his wife and seven-year-old daughter before turning the gun on himself, or when one nation invades another and wreaks havoc and destruction. That anger is a tiny reflection of the perfect anger God feels towards evil. But why bring up the subject of anger here? Does Paul, the writer of this letter, simply get out of bed the wrong side in a bad mood before, as he picks up his pen to carry on uh, his letter? So far, he has told the church in Rome about his plan to visit them. He says, I, I want to come because I want to strengthen you in your faith. I want to seek your support for our, my missionary journey to Spain. 
And he says, I'm going to do that by preaching the gospel to you. And in verse 17, if you just look back to that, he says, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. In other words, the gospel is the way that God restores sinful human beings into right relationship with himself. And Paul says, I want to preach about that when I come to visit you. But he knows that the only way that people can enjoy and, and receive the benefits of the gospel is by faith, by trusting God's promises. No one can make themselves right with God. That is why he says in verse 17, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. The only way to get right with God is by trusting God. Paul knows that that is a pretty big claim. And so in our section today, he begins to back it up. He says the reason salvation is only by faith, the reason no one can do anything to get themselves right with God is because God is angry. Angry with everyone who doesn't trust him. And if we want to see evidence for that anger, and if we want to see, sorry, if we want to see a reason for that anger and then evidence for that anger, we need to look in two places. First of all, the human heart, and secondly, human behavior. And that is what we're going to look at as we work our way through this passage this morning, God's indictment against humanity with the help of three headings. First of all, disordered worship. Disordered worship. Verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. See, surprisingly, in the first instance, the evil that arouses God's anger isn't the sort of thing that we would find written on a charge sheet at a crown court. Instead, it is the way we try to bury the truth. The picture here is of someone trying to push a drowning swimmer's head underwater suppressing the truth. So human beings try to suppress the truth that we already know about God. You see verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. When we look at the world, we see evidence that God exists all over the place. The Psalms put it like this, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Or as the physics Nobel Prize winner Arno Penzias, one of the discoverers of cosmic microwave background radiation, which apparently uh, led towards the, the theory of the Big Bang, he puts it like this, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing one with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the right conditions to permit life, and one which has an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. You see, the facts are clear, but at its heart, sin is an attempt to push the facts under the surface, like a man trying to drown another man, pushing his head under the water. The thing is, we don't leave it there, because at the moment we try to push the the truth underwater, We also substitute it for something else. We substitute the true God for idols. And so God is angry, rightly angry with humanity for our disordered worship. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Um, a moment of light relief. Uh, one of the things that came out of the Harry and Meghan saga was this apparent... Um, she was surprised that she had to curtsy when she first met the Queen. I remember if you remember that. Uh, she didn't know it was expected and she didn't know how to do it. Uh, she was, after all, simply meeting her boyfriend's grandmother. But, of course, this particular grandmother was the Queen. So, showing your respect, in this instance, by a curtsy, is kind of the obvious and right thing to do. Now, on a much, 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 much bigger scale, there are some things that are simply obviously the right thing to do, the right way to interact with God. Paul describes it in verse 21 as glorifying God and giving thanks to God. In other words, giving thanks to him for all that he has given to us, treating him as God, because he is God. But that is not the way we respond, is it? We swap the immortal, invisible, only wise God, the God we sang about earlier, the one who is beyond our imagining for images that we've made to be gods in his place. Sometimes those images are idols which you might actually physically see in a museum. Okay, an image of a, a human being or a, a bird, an animal or a reptile. But equally, those images can be ideas that we forge in the idol factories of our minds. We make dress-up divinities and designer deities out of the ordinary things of life. And oftentimes, those idols, those images, turn into monsters with a whole life of their own. Let me give you an extreme example, okay? Uh, someone was telling me this week about the 200% increase in the membership of the Global Order of Satan UK over the last five years. Now, I suspect the actual numbers involved in that are not very big. But just listen to what the co-runner of that organization has to say to explain their growth in numbers. He says this, this is particularly amongst younger people who don't want to be identified as part of a prescriptive dogmatic religion and rather want to identify as their own self-beliefs and self-realization, which is what Satanism offers. See, they call it Satanism, but he just tells you what it is there, doesn't he? It is the worship of self. Ensuring one's own self-realization is the number one priority. And how different is that to the much more mundane idols of my life and your life? Money, sex, power, security, health, politics, family, religion, the list just goes on and on. See, an honest look inside the human heart is enough to expose the fundamental reason why God is angry with human beings. It's disordered worship. We suppress the truth and then we substitute the truth. We, we engage in this grotesque exchange. It's as if we, we take the true God to the local pawn shop and we just swap him for a much more inferior model. And we think it's ever so wise. But idolatry is the very definition of stupidity. Now, the prophet Jeremiah put it like this. He said, has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror declares the Lord. 
For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, I think Paul had that image, those verses in his mind, as he talks about people exchanging the true God for idols. God is rightly angry with every single human being who's ever lived because every single human heart cannot help but engage in disordered worship. Now, the rest of our reading shows us where we see the proof of that anger in the world today. Because when we look at human behavior, first of all, at a zoomed-in example, and secondly, at a much more panoramic view, we see that the evidence is impossible to ignore. Second, disordered sex, verses 24 to 27. 24. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now, just before we get ahead of ourselves, please notice this is important, the therefore at the beginning of the verse. So impure sexual desires, impure sexual activity is first and foremost not a cause of God's anger, but a consequence of it. God gave them over, we're going to explore that phrase a little bit in a moment, to sexual impurity. God isn't some sort of prudish Victorian governess who who is embarrassed about sex and who explodes every time someone shows a bit too much ankle or the, the latest time they see something dodgy in the tabloids. God invented sex. In fact, you could paraphrase his very you could paraphrase his very first command in the Bible to Adam and Eve, go and have sex and have lots of it. Fill the earth and subdue it. The first married couple were meant to use the creator's good gift of sex to serve him by filling the earth with more Adams and Eves. But ever since the the first human being suppressed the truth about God and substituted him for idols of their own creation, disordered sex has acted like a warning sign pointing to God's anger against evil, proof that all is not right in the world God made. And like I said, the key phrase we need to understand is this phrase, God gave them over. It appears here in verse 24 and then twice more. Let me give us a picture to try to help us understand it. Imagine a boat tied to the riverbank. The occupants of the boat are safe in that boat for as long as they're in the boat, for as long as they're tied to the riverbank, sorry. There's a strong current pulling them away from the riverbank, but they're tied to the riverbank. They're safe. God's wrath, his anger against evil, as we read about earlier, which is being revealed from heaven, is not the natural consequence of those sailors choosing to untie the boat from the shore themselves. It's not some sort of impersonal, natural cause and effect, a kind of Christian version of bad karma. A better picture is to see God untying the rope himself. And so as they bump over the rapids and head towards the waterfall, they've got no one else to blame but themselves. God simply allowed them to have what they'd already chosen. But even that image doesn't quite do justice to Paul's words. It is much more like God unties the rope and then gives the boat a push. Like he hands over, like a judge handing over the prisoner to the punishment his crime deserves. God is actively involved in handing us over to the consequences of our disordered worship. And disordered sex is a particularly graphic and apt illustration of that handing over. 
which is why Paul repeats himself before adding more details to the charge sheet. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. It's a reminder of what we've already seen, isn't it? The perverse trade-off, the trade-in, rather, that we've signed up for. We swap the truth about the creator for the, for the creation. We worship idols instead of the God who made everything. And so what does God do? He hands us over. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, just in the last week, I've had lunch with a, a Christian friend who identifies as same-sex attracted or gay. I've met with another who has experienced sexual desires and uh, for and, ex and had sexual experiences with both men and women. None of us read these verses in a vacuum. They are shocking and sensitive. They are challenging and difficult to read. They affect all of us, some people that we know and love dearly in particular. But Paul wasn't some sort of sexually repressed, first century, first um, fundamentalist, homophobic, right-wing bigot on a rant. He is simply, albeit graphically describing one particular theological consequence of disordered worship. And so when he talks about men and women exchanging natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, we can't, as 21st century readers come to it and just explain it away and say, well, Paul doesn't know anything about sexual orientation like we do today. We also can't say that he's just taking aim at abusive homosexual practices and that he knew nothing of faithful, loving, same-sex relationships that we might see around us. Paul understood the big story of the Bible when it comes to sex. He knew what was written right at the beginning in Genesis about a man leaving his father and mother and being united to his wife and becoming one flesh. He knew how Jesus applied that doctrine of marriage written about right at the beginning to one man and one woman for life. He's not writing in the dark ages. He doesn't need updating for the 21st century. Of course, it is always wrong to be unloving towards anyone, to condemn anyone for any particular sin. The gospel is the very definition of inclusion. It is for everyone, all who believe. And so we must never say that homosexual sex is a worse sin than any other sin. But these verses, alongside the whole story of Scripture, do make it clear that homosexual practice is wrong. Just as all sex outside of, het of uh, heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman is wrong. And, and whatever our own personal sexuality or sexual history, we have all exchanged the truth about the Creator for His creation. And so God hands us over as a human race to an exchange that runs at the, to the very heart of our identity, to disordered sex. We've all messed up, either in our thought life or with our bodies, most probably with both. Disordered sex is a sign of God's judgment that we must turn away from in repentance 
not affirming it, not celebrating it. Sadly, that is exactly what the Church of England has not agreed to do this week. You may have come across that in the news. Um, At its meeting of General Synod, the Church approved, in principle, so-called prayers of love and faith proposed by the bishops. And so soon, in all likelihood, it will be possible for clergy within the Church of England to bless those in same-sex relationships. They say they are blessing the people, not not the relationship, but it's a nonsense. Everyone knows what is going on. The bishops say they haven't and won't change the doctrine of marriage, and yet they have also, in that meeting, gladly spoken about the development of doctrine. And if you were to read through the prayers that they have proposed, you will see a service that looks almost exactly like a marriage ceremony. Tragically, this isn't about being inclusive and welcoming. No matter what those in favour of the changes might say, it is about ignoring and changing the clear teaching of Scripture, following our culture, not trusting God's word, saying that sin is no longer sin, but it is worthy of God's blessing. We don't know exactly what the fallout of all that will be, but what we can say today is that God is not mocked. We must remain faithful to him. As we read these verses, we must remember God does not hate gay people, as some will glibly say, But he does say that disordered sex is a sign of his anger against us, a consequence of our disordered worship. And so we must all repent. We must all repent of our sexual immorality. We must teach the goodness of a properly biblical sexual ethic. We must care for and include each other, whatever our sexual desires, whatever our sexual experiences, and we must pray that the church would uphold God's standards, not the world's. Uh, There is so much more that could and should be said on this. And I just want to say that if you have any questions, any objections, any personal experiences that you want to talk about in this whole area of life, please do speak to me. Or maybe to uh, Matt or Rob or to Linda or to your home group leader. Maybe straight after church today, maybe on another occasion. These are incredibly countercultural issues. And I may have been insensitive in the way I've put them across. And if I have been, I'm sorry. I really would love to talk further if that would be helpful. But just for now, let me stress as we move on that God is not fixated on this subject. It is not the last thing he has to say. Disordered sex is a zoomed-in symptom of the consequences of our disordered worship. It is proof that God is angry with humanity. But it is also part of a much bigger story, a much bigger picture, And we're going to see that in our final section. So thirdly and finally, disordered morality. Disordered morality. Verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind to do so that they do what ought not to be done. Paul is still talking about the consequences of idolatry. But now instead of talking about suppressing knowledge, pushing the the knowledge under the surface of the water to drown it out, he pictures human beings taking the truth that they know and forcing it through the shredder. Instead of filing it in our minds, we shred it to try to ignore it. And so he zooms out to reveal a panoramic view of the consequences of this idolatry. Verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, 
greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. It just goes on and on and on. It's like one of those media bulletins you listen to and you're just desperately waiting for one item of good news. But nothing comes and so you just want to hit the mute button. It is the longest so-called vice list in the whole New Testament and it hits us in our guts much more than it makes sense in our minds. It is, a, an emo- it is meant to have an emotional impact upon us, not an intellectual one. Because we know what these words mean, don't we, as we read them. And we know they describe us. Hopefully not all of, us, not all of them all of the time, but certainly some of them some of the time. It is an unairbrushed, brutally honest portrait of the human race. But even this all-inclusive buffet of wickedness is not the punchline. Perhaps the most shocking surprise in this whole section is the very last verse. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It's another flashback to the beginning of the story. Paul has had the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in his mind the whole time he's been writing this. Do you know, you know how the story goes? Adam and Eve, they are free to eat from any tree in the garden, God says, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, if you eat from that tree, you will certainly die. And along comes the serpent, and the serpent says, did God really say that? You will not surely die. God knows that if you eat from that tree, you'll be like God. You'll be able to decide what's good and evil. It'll be brilliant. And of course, they listen to the devil's lies. They swallow those lies instead of trusting God's word. And so they reach out and they take the tree. And what happens? They realize they're naked and they hide from God because they have become like God, knowing good and evil. And so what does God do? He drives them out of the garden. And what happens? They die, just like God said they would. And you and I, we all follow in their steps. However much we try to drown out the truth, there's something inside each one of us that knows we are accountable to God. We know we need to face him as our judge. And so when I listen to the radio and I hear the details of a rapist, a serial rapist's crimes recounted, and I'm angry, my cries for justice echo back upon myself. We deserve to die, according to God, for our act of high treason against our creator. But instead of, this is the crazy thing, instead of pleading for his mercy, what do we do? We carry on with our own disordered morality. We even applaud those who do it. Verse verse 32 again. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. No wonder Paul says at the beginning of this section, verse 20, people are without excuse. So there ends the indictment against us. 
for today at least, it does carry on until the middle of chapter 3. Disordered worship, the reason why God is rightly angry with every human being who has ever lived. Disordered sex and disordered morality, two graphic illustrations of that anger played out on the pages of human history. It's bad news. But we need to hear it, don't we? If we're going to appreciate the wonderful good news of the gospel for ourselves, if we're going to be motivated to share it with other people, God is righteously angry. But he will not be angry anymore, ever again, with anyone who trusts him, with anyone who commits themselves to him and his righteousness. God will never be angry again. This is what it says in a couple of chapters' time. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Let me read that verse one more time as the musicians come up, and then they're going to lead us in a, a, a song, give us an opportunity to pray ourselves and to meditate upon what we've heard. And then they'll invite us to join in with this, this song. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus.